Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Bring in Ambassador Haas. I don't know if Ambassador Haas wants to speak to me. Oh, I said so to him, sad. Ambassador Haas, it's so good to see you. And he said anything for Tom Keane. Well, you know, it's implied. It's a, that's called an implied pharaoh. <laughs> Richard Haas, Council of Foreign Relations President. Richard, it's always great to get your insight. On, great um, to be with you. Uh, uh, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. <laughs> Let's talk about what we finally got, which was um, maybe a little bit of a de-escalation between Europe and the United States. How did you read that, Richard? I did read it as a, a de-escalation. It's a it's a truce. The question with truces is, is is whether they ultimately translate into treaties and become enduring. And we don't know whether this was simply a tactical pullback by the president because he's getting some pushback around the country. A lot of uh, people who are part of his base, farmers, also people in manufacturing, just workers, are beginning to feel the direct and indirect effects of the these tariffs. So we don't know whether it's simply tactical, as things so often are in this administration, or again, and whether this will be translated into something that will last. You've talked before about the several fronts that the United States appears to be at war with. Um, one is trade and there are other spheres you think it's taking place as well. Um, what are you most concerned about now? Uh, the, the answer is essentially yes. It's all of the above. There, there's there's trade, which is one, I, and the side effect also of, what, of our fiscal stimulus and tax cuts is the, the long-term debt. I'm worried about uh, North Korea because, among other things, it is not denuclearizing. I think there's a chance of conflict with Iran. Uh, unlike North Korea, we're being urged to confront Iran by our local allies, and Iran doesn't have great power backers. And then domestically, I think the assault on some of our institutions in this country is also real real grounds for concern. I've never asked you this question. I'm going to ask it right now. How does Iran fight wars? I mean, I, I remember my amateur reading of the Iran-Iraq war, which was basically medieval. But how, when, when you say a potential conflict with Iran, what does that actually mean? Well, Iran has many tools. It has cyber tools it would use against us. It has terrorism, which it could deploy anywhere yeah. around the world. It has the Revolutionary Guards, which is essentially a paramilitary force. It has Does it uh, have Hezbollah. like a military military, yes. like yes. tanks, yeah. you know, yes. Arab-Israeli 67? But not at, not at that level. But, mm. but I mean, much, much more worrisome about Iran is what they could do through what's called asymmetric efforts to interfere with shipping. They, For example, tankers would be very vulnerable to Iranian missile boats and to Iranian speedboats, which could be used as, as terrorist Do they tools. control the Gulf of Hormuz? Control is too strong of a word, but they could deny it temporarily to us or to anybody else. So it could be, right. they could disrupt. Now, that would be a major escalation because that would put them a target on their backs. Right. And sooner or later, they would not prevail in that. There, there's this illusion that it is an elected government, that it is a democracy. You really push against that, don't you? Yeah, it's almost impossible to speak about the Iranian government in the singular. It's plural. You've got a religious authority that is not elected, and then you've got political authority, but that's limited. Plus, now you also have this military, uh, ideological, intelligence uh, authorities. So you've got multiple centers of power, but still, I'd say there are this fusion of the political with the religious dominates. And the people mm -hmm. we're used to dealing with, Javad Zarif, the foreign minister, Rouhani, the president, they are clearly limited in their sway. There is something broader and perhaps more powerful taking place, and I'd love your insight on it. I'm just wondering whether we've ever seen a country like the United States voluntarily give up, concede, hegemonic power. Have we ever seen this before? 
The short answer is no. We're used to countries being exhausted. Uh, we saw that, say, with uh, the United Kingdom, uh, given World War I, you know, the, the, then we had the fall of the empire. We saw it with uh, the Soviet Union as a result of Afghanistan and the Cold War competition. The United States under, to some extent, Barack Obama, but intensified under Donald Trump, is the first example I'm aware of in history of a country voluntarily choosing to abdicate, to walk away from a large international role. Mm -hmm. What makes it particularly bizarre is we have benefited so much. The, the costs of what we've done are far outweighed by the benefits we've derived. So to simply abdicate, I find without historical precedent and without rationale. Ambassador, thank you so much for uh, too, brief a visit, uh, too brief a visit on radio uh, today, but we greatly appreciate it across our morning hours. Richard Haas is with the Council on Foreign Relations. This is our interview of the day on Facebook, and this goes back to the heritage of securities analysis of technology and it started and i mean started 40 years ago at robertson coleman seibel and weissel tom weissel was really the one that started all of this analysis of the investment and finance of technology in san francisco that distilled down to his wonderful firm and then on to montgomery securities and john a gentleman who helped spearhead so much of this then a younger Mark Lehman is with us uh, today who understands the heritage, the foundation, John, of the Menlo Park in San Francisco that's blowing up this morning. Isn't it nice to have Mark here with us in New York? It is, and particularly because we we don't know the history of where Mark and I came from with Robertson Stevens and particularly with Tom Weissel. And you've got that heritage that Mr. Zuckerberg and Ms. Sandberg are bouncing off of this morning. Mark Lehman at JMP Securities, the president, joining us around the table. Great to have you with us. We're down 20% in the pre-market on Facebook. What went wrong, Mark? Well, a few things went wrong. One is uh, they clearly had um, a revenue top-line uh, number that missed uh, the analyst expectations, and you never want to see that. You, you combine that with uh, expense growth that was well above expectations as well, and of course the guidance going forward, which was um, not wonderful and not what the street wanted to see. So put those all together with a stock that had gone up 40% since the bowels of the Cambridge Analytica scare in the first quarter in, in early April, and it was just ripe for uh, disappointment. And all those things combined have the stock, as you just said, down 20%. Um, and, and a lot of people saying, I told you so. Then again, stocks can be flat year to date. It was up 25% before this year to date. So it's not like this is uh, this is kind of a don't cry for me, Argentina. But yeah. clearly, this was a disappointment. We're going back to May levels. And clearly, it's a disappointment. And I always look at the failure of communication when we see moves this big. We haven't got a catastrophe. There isn't a crisis that's been announced. We just got the numbers and they were a little bit lower than many people anticipated. What are we seeing on the screen relative to the news? Is it an overreaction? That's what I'm trying to get into. And whether this is the mother of all buying opportunities when a company this big with so much scope um, is down 20%. Well, you, you, you're, you're correct. I, I mean, like you said, it is down 20% um, here and it is kind of flat year to date. Um, this will be the largest single uh, uh, loss of market cap um, in one day in the and history of the And it's your market. fault. And it's all my <laughs> fault. Uh, the same people who are telling you, I told you so, were telling you to sell the stock at 50, 100, 150 before. Yeah, it's true. So remember that. Um, listen, I, I, my faith is in the fact that they have several platforms that are still the bellwether platforms, um, Instagram, 
Um, obviously, Facebook, Facebook still. Do they core break Facebook. out the the income statements of these different bolt-ons, including they, Instagram? They really don't. What they talk yeah. about is daily average users. Should they? they talk about. I, I think uh, the street will probably ask for it at some yeah. point. Um, I think they're probably not going to do that right. um, soon because I think it helps them um, compare themselves to some of their competitors right. they have. Although the competition between Instagram and Snapchat, uh, I think Instagram. If you right. look at my kids, Instagram is the winner right now. Do they need to do an April eighth of nineteen eighty three? That is when Mr. Scully took over from Mr. Jobs. Do they need to bring a CEO adult type into the room? You know, I don't, I, I'm not sure we're there yet. I think there's plenty of adults around the table. They have had some losses. They've had some personnel losses. Um, I think Mark is clearly at the helm here. Um, he's not, uh, I, I wouldn't put him in the category of needing an adult in the room. Um, but clearly they're, they're very protective of what they have here. Um, and, and it is a very mercantile company, and let's not lose sight of that. Um, but they're hiring a lot of people. They're putting yeah. more and more personnel and expense pressure on that to cure some of the ills that we've talked about. To, I think to play for the long ball, not to play for the next quarter. You say you wouldn't put him in the category as needing an adult in the room, but many people did. It's why Sheryl Sandberg is there. Um, quite clearly, over the last couple of months, it's been a total failure. The response to the Cambridge Analytica scandal was slow. It was clumsy. Some people would just say it was outright pathetic. And the way they've communicated these numbers to the market is also pretty slow clumsy and lousy and outright pathetic when you see the stock down by 20% this morning. What's clear to me is that we have a problem on our hands. There is a growth picture that the market thought was going to come through and the company themselves are saying it's now not going to. Expenses rose, margins have come in a little bit. I guess the judgment call this morning is whether you think that trend continues. Is this a company that's just resetting expectations or are we about to see Facebook ultimately go to a more mature stage where we're not going to get the kind of growth levels we've got used to and where margins are going to get a little bit tighter? What do you expect now, Mark, in the reset today? You're going to see expenses bloat a little bit for now. I think given the revenue um, that they're going to garner, and I think that this move to the platform, obviously the online platform is still in its infancy. You are still seeing the media um, spend go more and more towards online. That has not abated. Yeah. You saw what, go, what Google reported <clears throat> earlier this week, a, a gargantuan company that was still able to report the kind of revenue growth they have. I don't think this is a revenue diminution story. I think this is still a story of whether you got to align right. expenses and revenues. The I think that's a bigger the, story. Mark Lehman with us with JMP. Thrilled that he's with us today with his heritage with Bank of America Securities and Tom Weissel and Montgomery as well. I just did it a fitted standard deviation study and Mr. Zuckerberg is joining a, enjoying a 4.4 standard deviation drop in the stock as we speak. Everything in me says load the boat if you believe in the fundamental story. JP Morgan adjusts price target. Somebody else adjusted. Piper Jaffray adjusted price target. Susquehanna went the other way and said, we're long. What are you right now? Can you divulge that before your morn morning meeting? I mean, we're still positive on the story. And I think our analyst, Ron Josie, has been pointing out what we talked about earlier, which is there's multiple ways to win here. If you just look at the ads on Instagram and the target markets that they have, that's a huge market. It's the absolute 18 to 30 market that absolute uh, advertisers always can, want. Can I just say, John, everybody at home is glued to Instagram? Yeah. I mean, they, I mean, they, I don't, they have don't. several franchises outside of the core product with a billion users. Messenger, WhatsApp, and Instagram. 
If you believe in the story like Mark does this morning, there's quite clearly areas where you're going to see significant yeah, growth but come in the on. future. Are you 4.4 standard deviation move? This is a massive move. But, I but this is you. like your single best buy? It's it's certainly one at the top of our list. You also have a stock, like we said earlier, that's gone from 100, basically 150 when it troughed in April to 215 right. yesterday. Can, okay, so 60, 40% in three months. Can I rip up the script? Please do. Okay, this is so important. We're talking about the heritage, Mark, that you carry with you from the days of Tom Weiss. So, and, and, and Robertson Stevens in that. Everybody out there collapsed in 01. What was the humility lesson out of the NASDAQ collapse of March of 01 for the San Francisco securities industry? Well, you asked a really large question. The, the, the industry had started to um, morph. Um, the four horsemen, a term that w many of you know, Robertson Stevens, Montgomery, Hamburg and Quist, and Alex Brown had yeah. all been bought by larger banks. Um, and at that time, San Francisco, which was the hub of those three of those firms, um, Robertson Stevens, Hamburg and Montgomery, had been bought by banks. And in doing so, the the core of the of those firms, which is really technology and healthcare research and banking, um, started to morph and, and move a little. The nexus moved to New York, and as that happened, a a a, a vacuum was created in. In, in tandem with the fact that the market was crashing. So our firm, JMP, got started at that time um, on the heels of that. Tom Weisel also started his firm mm -hmm. that has since moved in and merged into Stiefel. But at that time, there was a little bit of a vacuum then. And, and yeah. San Francisco really was, okay. uh, it, it was, a, it was we, a ghost town relative okay. to the way it is today. On behalf of John Farrow and our team, thank you so much for coming in. This is an extraordinary uh, day. I didn't realize, folks, the cap. John Farrow, you said this could be the largest capitalization drop. Yeah. In ever? history, I don't think we've ever had one that. bigger than 100 billion. Yeah. So we, I, I believe it will be 100 billion plus today. Intel dropped, I, I believe, 90 billion at one time okay. in the old days, and when the market was yeah. in 2000. Mark Lehman, thank you so much. Greatly appreciated. Well, we're going to shift right now to James Bevan, who has a tactical and strategic view of what to do with long-term investment at CCLA Investment Management uh, in London. J uh, James, how do you distill 342 earnings reports in one day? You can't do it. So how do you sort of keep up with a portfolio's earnings? I've lost Tom. Sorry, Tom, I lost you for a moment. Could you do that again? Okay, I'll do it again. You're, you know, you're a pro. You own X amount of securities. In the earnings madness, how do you keep up with the news flow, whether it's Facebook, American Airlines, or whatever? Do you know, Tom, I think keeping up with the news flow is immensely easy because it's all tagged. It all comes up. You don't have to go and look for it. I think what is interesting is how does one deal with information overload? How does one read through the numbers and arrive at a decision that looks prudent without panicking, without buying too much at the top? And for me, this is a matter of stepping back and taking a long-term view. Uh, I worry that there are far too many investors whose time horizon is very short, the day traders. Good luck to them. I think that's going to be an increasingly difficult game to play. The other issue that you will readily recognize is the companies cannot now brief away from the public arena. So digging up real nuggets of information is much harder. Real insight, therefore, will be yeah. very valuable. This is really important, John, the information flow today. James and I, John, remember when there was no PDF, no internet, and at 10 a.m. a cart with four heavy wheels was rolled off the elevator loaded with 
written reports. John, have you ever seen a written report? Handwritten. No, no, no. We didn't use Quill. Bevan used Quill. <laughs> he was in London. I didn't use Quill. I don't know if we're going but, back to the 20s or not. But James, this, this information equality now is remarkable. Which raises a big question, James, about whether you can actually get an edge as a stock picker in well-researched, heavily, perhaps overly researched, large-cap companies, whether you have to go to mid-cap to small-cap to find that edge, James. Uh, I think that if you take strategic views that the street tends to ignore, you absolutely can. And you identified the secular trend that is being played out with MasterCard and Visa. They're both big holdings in our portfolios because we share your view. But this is a secular growth story and it will run and run. It amazes me how many people are not stepping back and saying, well, so what are the big picture changes going on in society to which we should have leverage? What are the big picture changes, conversely, which we should try to avoid because they will trip us up? Well, let's talk about the other trends then, because the payment processing companies are just ripped, James, as you know. And if you've been sitting on them, you'll be doing very well. Visa's up 25% year to date, MasterCard 41, PayPal 24, Square up over 100%. All of these part of the same story. What's the other trend, this secular shift that we aren't picking up on? Because quite clearly, many investors have caught hold of that wind. What are you looking at that you think people are missing? Well, I certainly think that within the disruptive technologies generally, uh, in the field of pharmaceuticals, for example, we're not heavy in drugs. What we are interested in are diagnostics uh, and devices. So we're looking at the companies that are able to help practitioners have a better understanding of the diseases they're looking at with their patients. Those, I think, are the ideas yeah. because you can see secular growth and you can, you can calculate how big that market will be and therefore, by extension, how fast the earnings will grow. Within this, James Bevan, is with rates higher, I'm seeing a ton of two and three billion dollar deals. They don't really make the news visibility. Farah is so huge on his TV property, he won't even mention a three billion dollar deal. It's too small for John uh, James to, to, to mention on air. But there's a ton of them out there. Are we going to see an M&A frenzy as rates move up? I certainly think we will, and I think that M&A is going to be driven in part because a number of companies are finding organic growth in a climate of slowing overall global growth increasingly hard to deliver, and they are fearful of what the market will do if they come to the table with numbers that are down, not up. What about the valuation of these companies based on higher rates, James? The... The valuations issue, I think, is really important. And what I would observe in the U.S. equity market is that the strength of corporate earnings this year means that equities have had a roughly a 15% devaluation. To me, the case for buying U.S. equities is as strong as it's ever been. And I'm still projecting that the S&P 500 gets to 3,100 points by the end of the, this year. And if not by the end of this year, certainly by the middle of next. Yeah. It's way too early to sign up to the bear market idea. So do you um, share that enthusiasm for European equities, James? No, do you know, I certainly do not. I worry about the US, uh, US economy being hotter than expected. Conversely, I worry about the European economy being slower than expected. And that's because the European growth story yeah. is predicated on two challenges, export, which is increasingly difficult, and also domestic growth. And the domestic growth story on the back of slowing consumption trends is really very upsetting. James Bevan, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate your appearance on Bloomberg Surveillance uh, today.
now talk with Winthin of Brown Brothers Harriman uh, with a really unique perspective on um, Eastern European and emerging market currencies and what they signal. Winthin, let's talk uh, first of all about the core question. Is, is Chairman Powell the central banker to the emerging markets? <laughs> well, I'd say he's, in some ways he's the central banker to the world, right? I mean, a lot of eyes are obviously on ECB uh, this week, Bank of Japan, Bank of England next week. But really, the Fed is still the, the, really the main driver for global markets. And I think that's one of the reasons that I remain uh, fairly nervous about EM. Mr. Powell um, is continuing the tightening path that uh, Ms. Yellen set forth. Yeah. The, the Fed has signaled two more hikes this year. EM in general does poorly in a Fed tightening environment, so I right. remain concerned. Let, we, we've got the idiosyncratic stories, Argentina, Turkey, etc. Let me talk about Philippines, which has been extremely well managed at the one at the 53 uh, level, folks. This has been a much weaker Philippine peso, and then with some real stability in Philippine peso. How are they doing that? Uh, well, yeah, as you probably know, most currencies in emerging markets are, are heavily managed. Uh, you know, I can really count on one, one or two hands the, the number of EM currencies that are really freely tradable. For the most part, they're heavily managed. Uh, we have a combination of um, intervention, stealth intervention. Uh, yeah. We are in a tightening cycle in, in many EM right now. I think that's, if you want to take a step back, that's to me is a big game changer for EM. Uh, you know, EM has benefited from zero rates uh, around the, for the developed world for almost a decade, if not more. And we're finally getting out of that. And because of that, we're seeing a repricing of EM assets, um, equity, fixed income, exchange rates. So we're, I think we're still in the early days of adjustment, but uh, in general, I look for higher EM interest rates as well as uh, weaker EM currencies and some combination thereof. Win Thin, tell us about China, monetary easing in China. You know, it's uh, China. It's interesting. You know, they've been trying to deleverage. They've been trying to get away from the sort of uh, debt-fueled growth that we've seen over the past decade. But any time the, the the economy slows, we get a hiccup. They seem to go back to Plan A. Uh, so obviously, with this last week, we've seen some easing measures. Uh, this comes after some soft data out of uh, China in June, July. Bottom line, and I sound like a broken record. I, I say this every time. My bottom uh, base case bottom line is that they muddle through. Uh, I, I don't see any sort of big devaluation. I don't see any sort of financial crisis out of China uh, over the next uh, several years. But we are dealing with slower growth. Uh, I don't think they are um, purposely devaluing the currency. If you look at the, the, the performance of the yuan uh, on your WCRS page, Year-to-date, it's still one of the better-performing EM currencies. So it's following the rest of the market. It's really a strong dollar story that we're seeing right now. Do you believe that China is moving counter-cyclically? Well, yeah. I mean, I think they, they profess to want to, to continue to deleverage, um, to you know, not rely on debt, new loans, et cetera, and growth. But when push comes to shove, I think they get nervous when growth starts falling a little bit too fast. And so we sort of see them sort of stepping on the gas a little bit. Um, you know, again, yeah. it's... It's not long term. It's not. It's not optimal. But you know, it's sort of, sort of the one to two-year two year outlook. Uh, they can muddle through. Doctor Thin, thank you so much. Win Thin with Brown Brothers Harriman this morning. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.